Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, in chapter two, we saw Lacan had a lot to say about the cause and the effect of discourse. In the field of effects, two effects are prominent. Effects on structure, by which, you know, I mean infrastructure, and effects on subjects, living, breathing, speaking, desiring subjects. We talked a bit about structure last time, so let's talk a little bit about these subjects. So far what we've got is that discourses authorize their subjects, not the other way around. But subjects we know also sustain the discourses that authorize them. Even the most abstract discourse, mathematics, is sustained by living subjects, Lacan tells us on page 5 of chapter 3. Albeit, he says, in the most hidden fashion. And yet, mathematics, as a discourse, has among its primary functions a function written into each of its operations, this very hiding, to keep subjects hidden. Let's check out how Lacan puts this on page 5. Top of the page. What is involved in the desire that sustains, in the most hidden fashion, there it is, the apparently most abstract discourse, let's say mathematical discourse. And if you've got ears to hear, it's mathematics that he has his eye on here. And perhaps with an eye towards a discourse without words, we're still holding uh, space for that possibility. Nevertheless, the the difficulty is of a completely different order at the level where I have to place myself for the reason that if what animates mathematical discourse is uncertain, it is clear that each of its operations is constructed to scupper, to elide, to stitch up again, to suture this question at every instant. And remember what already appeared here four years ago about the function of the suture. While, on the contrary, what is at stake in analytic discourse is to give its full presence to the function of the subject. This reverses, on the contrary, the movement of reduction in logical discourse, which is perpetually centered in a way all the more problematic in that it is in no way permitted to us to supply for what is a flaw, except by artifice and by clearly indicating what we are doing at the moment when we allow ourselves to designate this lack. Effect of significance of something that claiming to signify it cannot be, by definition, a signifier. So the distinction here Lacan's drawing between psychoanalytic discourse and mathematical discourse is that the subject that the discourse of mathematics hides Uh, is precisely what the discourse of psychoanalysis makes present, focuses on, brings into attention. What looks like a flaw in the field of logical discourse 
is actually the very centerpiece in the field of psychoanalytic discourse. Let's see what we can make of this. <clears throat> in a very real sense, we have to remember here um, that this flaw, this lack in logical discourse, it ain't math's fault. The disappearance of the subject is endemic to all discourses by the sheer fact that discourses traffic in signifiers. Signifiers which, as we've seen, derive their meaning in differential relation to other signifiers. Language, the symbolic, the other. These are all different terms for this differential system. And in each case, in each of these totalizing operations, we see a lack, a lack at the level of their signifiers. Now, in our last lecture series on the logic of fantasy, we discussed the logical, structural, necessary lack in the big other. Namely, the fact that it lacks a relation to a big other like the one it imposes on us as its subjects. In order to establish and maintain its status as a totalizing container, and here is that key point again, the big other cannot be among its own contents. It's fundamentally at the basic level, and it's the simplest way to understand what's happening here, about the distinction between containers and their contents. The signifier of this lack is what we see in the upper left quadrant of the graph of desire. Capital S next to parens barred A, a signifier of the lack in the other. Notice how Lacan presents this again on page five of chapter three of seminar 16. Second paragraph, just after what we read on mathematical discourse. If we indicate the signifier of barred O, here for us in English would be the barred A in the standard English, signifier of barred A, it is in a way to indicate this lack, <clears throat> this lack of a subject. And as I articulated on several occasions, this lack in the signifier. What does that mean? What does this lack in the signifier represent if moreover we can admit that this lack is something specific to our misguided destiny. There, we designate the lack. It has always been the same, and if there is something that puts us in relationship with history, it is to conceive the degree to which, for so much time, men have been able to protect themselves from it. But this is not the question that I have come to raise before you today. On the contrary, I told you it is a matter of topology. If there is a formula that I repeated these days, these times with insistence, it is the one that roots the determination of the subject in the fact that a signifier represents it, represents it for another signifier. So here, if you'll recall, is the S1 over the subject and the S1 with an arrow pointed to S2. S1 represents the subject for an S2. That's the topology that he's working with here. And I suppose we could probably sketch it out really quick and hold it up for the screen so you could get a sense of just what he's doing here. 
here, the lack in question finds a different symbol. And that symbol is the barred S. Now, we're playing with this stuff. We're only a few chapters into Seminar 16. And part of the challenge in reading this text is to bracket for a moment other things that we know about later Lacan, earlier Lacan, and really just focus on this text and really try and read him at the level of what he's saying here. <clears throat> and see if we can make heads or tails of it. Now, of course, we want to add and bring in elements from earlier and later Lacanian theories, but it's important to focus really on what he's saying here because we don't want to miss anything. And all too often, our understandings of earlier and later Lacan are influenced by secondary scholars who themselves, you know, don't always uh, hit the nail on the head. We can, however, by sticking closely to the text, gather many insights some of which um, perhaps haven't been laid out before. What's lacking in the other? I'm here suggesting, again, just based on our reading of the text, at the level of the signifier is the subject. What's lacking in the big other at the level of the signifier is the subject that is represented by one signifier for another. The topology for this subject signifier circuit is the one I just showed you. Where at the top part, the circled part, this would be the level of society, perhaps. The other, the symbolic. Now it's not quite as clear as that, not quite as clean as that, but we're working this for purposes of clarity. Underneath you'd have the level of the subject. Society up top, subject down below. This might be the topology, rudimentary though it is, that we're beginning with here. Now let's be clear about this S1 to S2. <clears throat> S1 is the signifier that represents the subject for another signifier here designated by S2. What the hell's going on here? What's this all about? S1 to S2. S1 and S2. This is the smallest differential system to which language, the big other, society, the symbolic, can be reduced. If language is a differential system of signifiers, the smallest differential system you can have is a binary system. I don't mean oppositional. I don't mean dichotomous. I mean binary in the sense of two. There are two elements in this differential set known as language, an S1 and an S2. Now you could just as easily add a dot, 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 S3, S4, S5, X6, and so, and you got a full blown, many millions of words, blah, blah, blah. No, what we're working with here is the smallest irreducible differential system requisite to any language. And that's what Lacan is carving out here with this S1, S2 binary, which he refers to as an ordered pair. It still works here. Notice how he puts us at the top of page six, just after the paragraph we read about the signifier of lack and the other, and just after his shift to topology. This formula has the advantage of inserting into the simplest, the most reduced connection, that of a signifier one, S1, to a signifier 2, 
S2. And then he shows you, again, the S1 with a little arrow going to S2. This is what we must start from in order not to lose, no longer be able to lose from a single instant, the dependency of the subject. So what Lacan's saying is like, if we're going to understand what's going on with the subject, we first have to make really good sense and pay very careful attention to this foundational ordered pair, this binary of S1 and S2, this two element set that is a differential system. Notice the shift from topology to formula. He is inviting us to start working from topologies to formulas. And I think we can take him up on this offer. So let's just see. Let's take him at his word and see if we can come up with a formula that captures this topology. Now, if we were going to try it, and I'm moving fast here, so we're not going to get out the, the blackboard or anything like that. Let's just sketch this out. If we were going to come up with a formula that could capture what Lacan is here doing, it might look something like this. First, you'd have a signifier of the barred other. This is what you see in the upper left quadrant of the graph of desire. And what we're going to try and figure out is what exactly this means. Can we come up with a formula that supports what Lacan is here saying about the signifier of the lack and the other, if indeed the subject is related to that? And the answer is yes. The formula is a signifier of the barred other equals S1 plus S2 minus the split subject. And what I'm going to do here is I'm not just going to write it S1 plus S2 minus the split subject in order to capture the sense of the binary set that Lacan is here designated with S1 and S2. I'm going to put these in brackets so that effectively what you have is a single element that has two parts. Now, we might determine that that's a mistake later, but for now, for our purposes, to keep our eye focused on this ordered pair, we're going to bracket and group them together into a set. Signifier of the barred other equals the set comprised of S1 and S2 minus the subject. A subject that, remember, is represented by S1 and extinguished by S2. We'll come to that real soon. All right, so we're toying with this formula, a formula that's going to capture for us some sense of what Lacan's meaning here in seminar 16 at the start about a signifier of lack in the other. In this formula, we can read it as follows. The signifier of lack in the big other is at the very least a two-element set comprised of the ordered pair S1 and S2, a signifier that illuminates the subject and a signifier that extinguishes it. The S1 illuminates, representing the subject. <clears throat> and S2, Lacan says, is the one that extinguishes it, causing it to disappear. This effectively petrifies the subject extinguishing it. 
allowing it to appear only as a figure of disappearance, as a disappearing figure, as a disappearing act even. A trace, a tracer of sorts, and nothing more, which is why we have the minus sign at the end. It's a little redundant because the barring of the subject is a version of that minus sign. So it's a little redundant, but for the purposes of giving us a clear and coherent formula, we can add that minus sign. And I leave the subject as barred because that's how it's typically represented in the Lacanian algebra but represented at the level of its subtracted relation to the binary set of S1 and S2. This is what Lacan means by aphonesis, that the subject disappears as soon as it shows up. This kind of bizarre state of the split subject as always fading, faded, fading out. If there's a foundation of the graph of desire, it's here. I would say beneath the S1, at the level of the ever-fading subject, at what Lacan calls, check this out, the lowest point of what here is presented as a ladder, as being what a signifier represents for another signifier. So if we go back and look at this, formula, this topological version of the formula, what Lacan is here saying is, read this bar as the lowest rung of a ladder. And that's what you see on page 12 of chapter 3, is you see the graph of desire redrawn, and you can imagine these as levels, rungs in a ladder. Now, if you've seen our series or heard our podcast on the subversion of the subject where we dug into this graph, you know, and or anywhere else in our work, actually, you know <clears throat> that I read that graph at the level of four different registers, four different rungs of a ladder. The lowest level, you have need, then demand, then there's the rung of desire, and at the top is the drive need, demand, desire, and the drive. Here what Lacan is doing is doubling down on that image of this being a ladder of sorts. And what he's telling us, this is the important part, is that at the very bottom, the lowest point of this ladder is the subject. In other words, what a signifier represents for another signifier. It's an interesting move. Um, it also harkens back to Lacan's essay on the subversion of the subject, very crucially where he talks about that interesting move where the split subject slides over to the bottom right-hand corner of the graph. It's a fascinating move, and it's one that gets about a sentence or two explanation afterwards, at which point, at which point Lacan is off to something else. It'd be great to see a commentary <clears throat> on that precise move, where the split subject slides from the bottom left-hand quadrant of the graph of desire, which is where you see it in the elementary form of the graph of desire, this one that begins with the delta of pure need that results in this retroactive arc in the split subject. And now in the graph of desire, what we see is that split subject slips to the right. Really interesting, allowing the ego ideal to be down in the bottom left instead. Now, I think there's some easy ways to make sense of that and some more complicated ways 
Um, anyway, this is not that discussion, but it's worth noting here that in the graph of desire, as discussed here and elsewhere, the split subject occupies the lowest point, the bottom rung, if you will, of this ladder. If S1 is the signifier that represents the subject, what the hell is S2? What is this other, additional, different signifier <clears throat> that is addressed by S1? And how exactly does this S2 extinguish the subject, as Lacan tells us? Well, let's check the text. Page 13 is where I found some useful stuff. Between where we left off on 6 and 13, you can see what he's doing with the graph of desire. You can see the passage about the ladder on page 12, and then we come to page 13. Let's see what we can find out about this other signifier, this S2. I'm reading in the middle paragraph, <clears throat> sixth line down. This other signifier in this radical connection is very precisely what represents knowledge. Knowledge, then, in the first articulation of what is involved in the function of the signifier insofar as it determines the subject. Knowledge in this opaque is this opaque term in which, as I might say, the subject loses himself, or again is extinguished, if you wish. And this is what the notion that I underlined in my use in my, by using the term fading always represents. Here's aphonesis again, this notion of fading. In this relation, in this subjective genesis, at the start, knowledge presents itself as this term in which the subject has extinguished itself. So S1 is the signifier that represents the subject. It represents the subject for S2. S2 is here figured as knowledge. <clears throat> if the S1 is the signifier that illuminates the subject, it's in the field of S2 that the subject is cast into shadow, that the subject is here, he says, extinguished, fades out lost even. But that's not what he says. He says the subject loses himself. Loss is not the same thing as lost. We'll see if we can make sense of that. So here it is. S2 equals knowledge. And it's in the field of knowledge that the subject is extinguished. That's what we have so far. But this knowledge, like the signifier, is opaque. It's not the first time we've seen opaque show up around the signifier. It also happens in chapter 1 of 16, where opaque is the term that the English translators give us. The knowledge in which the subject is stifled, effaced, petrified, <clears throat> at the very same time that it appears, it's cloudy, it's foggy, it's difficult to see in, and navigate through. <clears throat> In other words, it's opaque. No wonder 
subjects lose themselves in knowledge. It's murky in there. What else do we know about knowledge at this point in seminar 16? Well, we know that knowledge, chapter 2, page 10, is the price of the renunciation of enjoyment. In other words, that the price of admission into the field of knowledge is jouissance. Enjoyment is the price we pay for access to knowledge. Let's be clear. To be a subject is to be subject to the normative laws and logics of society, the symbolic, the big other. And the foundational moment of these laws and logics is a prohibition against enjoyment. Pursue pleasure as much as you like, but enjoy as little as possible, even and especially when given free reign and even direct orders to enjoy. The rule remains enjoy as little as possible, which is why the commandment to enjoy from Ecclesiastes to the superego well, by God, if that's not sadistic. Does this mean that we experience enjoyment before society gets a hold of us? Were we in a state of jouissance before society got a hold of us? In other words, that enjoyment was something we had and then lost in the process of symbolic alienation? Let's be categorical. Is enjoyment a lost object? No, it is not. Enjoyment is not something we once had and subsequently lost. Instead, hear me now, it's an effect or a production of the experience of symbolic alienation. Let's be clear, make no mistake here. Society precedes enjoyment, the same way that the symbolic conditions the real. No symbolic, no real. No society, no jouissance. Which is why it's always mistaken, or at least ill-advised, to describe infantile, pre-linguistic, bio-animalistic life in terms of jouissance. What Lacan calls in the 1950s the here and now of the all in the process of becoming, it's one of the only real clear statements we get from him on pre-linguistic, pre-symbolic life. Now, we also get some great stuff when he talks about how close to death it is. We've discussed this, I believe, in our series on Seminar 11. But what's great here is that we've got this on our horizon as a here and now of the all and the process of becoming, and that's all we've got. This is not a field of enjoyment. This pre-linguistic state of the here and the now, of the all and the process of becoming, 
it is not a site of enjoyment. And you've probably heard me say it before, but if you ask me, it sounds a hell of a lot like terror more than enjoyment, horror more than jouissance. So when Lacan says that we exchange jouissance for knowledge, he means that we forfeit all and any opportunities for enjoyment when we enter the murky, foggy, opaque field of knowledge. We forfeit the opportunity for enjoyment. This doesn't mean that we don't access enjoyment at a later date. On the contrary, this is precisely what it means to enjoy. By prohibiting enjoyment, society makes enjoyment possible. And not just by way of transgression, as many readers often mistakenly assume. Transgression is just one way that you can access enjoyment. And I would argue that that way of accessing enjoyment, enjoyment, as you heard me say in our series on the drive, is fundamentally unsatisfactory because transgression always remains pegged to the law it breaks and desire, as we know, is coterminous with the law. So here you would see enjoyment still shackled to the symbolic, still shackled to desire. And that transgressive move uh, is, is one that will ultimately um, leave us wanting more and more and more and more. And the same way that desire does, not in a fun way. From Seminar 11 forward, Lacan is looking for non-transgressive ways to enjoy. That's important to note here. The transgressive aspect of jouissance, it's firmly in Seminar 7. Interestingly, I also believe that the seeds of his notion of surplus jouissance at the level of commodity consumption are also in Seminar 7. But by the time you get to Seminar 11, and here we are in 16, Lacan is really searching hard for other ways of accessing enjoyment beyond transgression. We've seen this in our series on Seminar 11 and on the drive. The drive in particular gives us an embodied, autoerotic, desublimative, and resubjectivizing circuit that allows for a unique access to enjoyment and uniquely non-transgressive. Here in 16, we're discovering another non-transgressive form of enjoyment known as surplus jouissance, surplus enjoyment. Okay, but enough about that. We're talking about knowledge here. Let's focus on the knowledge topic. I would suggest at this point in seminar 16 that there's something really enigmatic about knowledge. And not just because it's opaque, as Lacan tells us. Recall what he says about S2, the other signifier that symbolizes knowledge. And here I would say, recall all the way back to the very start of seminar 16, session one, page 10, bottom. Let's take a look. When I say that the signifier must be defined as what represents a subject for another signifier, here you are, start of 16, he's back at this formula, this topology, this hypothesis, as we saw this statement in the opening session. 
When I say that the signifier must be defined as what represents a subject for another signifier, this means that no one will know anything about it except the other signifier, the other signifier being S2. And the other signifier has no head. It's a signifier. The subject is stifled, effaced immediately at the same time as it appears. It is a matter precisely of seeing why something of this subject, which disappears in emerging, produced by one signifier, S1, in order to be immediately extinguished by another, S2. S2 as knowledge. It marks a field and a function of knowing in and as which the subject is not only extinguished, but also, and here's the weird part, known. Let's see what we can do with this. It's messed up to be a subject. You're illuminated, only to be extinguished, and it's precisely there as the disappearing act that you are, that you're known. This is what we're learning about S2 in the opening sessions of Seminar 16. I wonder if this is what Lacan gets at when he says that S2 is headless, acephalic. And I wonder if this is the enigma that we have to start with. What kind of knowledge does S2 designate if it is headless? It's tempting to rush into some answers here, isn't it? Let's not. Let's stick with the text. Reading on from page 13. And really just right after the semicolon where we stopped. Knowledge presents itself as this term in which the subject has extinguished itself. And then we just keep reading. Note this term. This is the sense of what luck what Freud designated as primary repression. This so-called repression that is said explicitly formulated not to be such, but as being this kernel already beyond the reach of the subject, while at the same time being knowledge. This is what the notion of primary repression signifies insofar as it makes it possible for every signifying chain to connect up with it implying this enigma, this veritable contradiction which the subject as unconscious is. Clearly, there's a reason why the translators kept the German here. Why they didn't also render this as primary repression, hard to know. But it's not simply repression that we're talking about here. It's primary repression. That's what the er on the front of the German term presented here on page 13 suggests. <clears throat> the knowledge in question here is an object of primary repression that is beyond the reach of the subject, we heard on page 13, yet still experienced as a kind of knowledge. Where exactly do subjects know things beyond their reach? Clearly at the level of the unconscious. But this begs another, more foundational question. 
what is the object of primary repression that the unconscious allows us to know? Another signifier, but not just any signifier. It's the primordial signifier, the unary trait that we know. A signifier pronounced, accepted, negated, and repressed in the passage from S1 to S2. And each of those stages is important. We've discussed each of them at length, so I won't go into them. But this is a signifier, the unary trait, that is pronounced, accepted, negated, and repressed in the passage from S1 to S2. And here it's the clinical structure of neurosis that we're looking at here, right? Part of what you would see, Lacan argues in seminar three around psychosis, is that this primordial acceptance, this bayaung, that Lacan makes a big fuss about early on in his thought, um, this primordial acceptance, pulling it right from Freud's essay on negation, by the way, is something that the psychotic does not accept and instead rejects entirely, completely foreclosing this unary trait, this primordial symbol. Unlike the psychotic, however, the neurotic is somebody who accepts it and yet then goes on to negate it and then to repress it. <clears throat> I want to be crystal clear if I can about this, even at the risk of stepping in it as we go. Whatever else your S1 was, because you're a subject just like me, and whatever else your S1 meant and continues to mean for you, its function was and remains the same as mine and the same as the person in the other room. And the same as everybody else on this call, assuming we all fundamentally have the clinical structure of neurosis under our belts, so to speak. And that function is prohibition. Your first signifier, your master signifier, was the same as mine. No. That's the thing about master signifiers. It's a swarm of no's out there, a swarm of S1s, all of which serve the basic function of prohibition. It doesn't mean the first word you heard or the first word you spoke was no. It means that the function of that first signifier was prohibitive. And as a result, the function of that signifier, regardless of what the word was, was no, thou shalt not. At issue here, is the first of two moments that constitute what Lacan calls the name of the Father. It's the moment, the first one, that we represent with the minus phi of castration. Here we see the non of the Father, which sounds exactly like the nom of the Father, the no of the Father. You always have to remember this. Lacan's playing when he says the name of the Father with the way that the French no sounds the same as the French name, which invites us to separate the name of the father into two basic operations. The first of which we're discussing now as the unary trait, as the primordial symbolizing act of prohibition. 
The naming part, well, there's a lot of good stuff out there on that. We're focusing on the know, the negating part, the know of the Father. Let's see if we can add some clear terms to this. The price of admission to the symbolic. Just ask any neurotic. Is your acceptance, negation, and repression of a primordial prohibition? A foundation inaugural no. Let's keep asking some questions on this. What does the no of the Father prohibit? Hear me now. I'm asking about the origin, not the operation of the barred subject. Where did that motherfucker come from? We know where the split subject is headed. It's always headed towards jouissance. But where did that motherfucker come from? I'm asking about the origin of the barred subject, not how it operates, not where it's headed. I'm asking about the origin. And as you know, an origin is not a genesis. An origin is like a primal scene that is retrospectively seen from a moment in which it is long past, sometimes not so long past, but in either case, gone, no longer. Origins are retroactive. I wanna take a chance here and suggest something different about the origin of the barred subject. <clears throat> You've heard people ask about this too. What's the primal ooze, material, goop, glop? What was there before the symbolic? And honestly, in doctoral seminars, especially oddly enough with clinical psychologists or psychologists-to-be, this is one of the basic questions that they always wanna talk about, not surprisingly. What exactly? is this infantile pre-linguistic state before symbolic alienation. Let's talk about that. And this may be one of the reasons why you often see psychoanalytic thought that's not quite as crystallized as Lacan's coupled with phenomenology. Think about that for a second. Back to our question of origins here. Here's what I wanna suggest. The mythical prehistory of the barred subject, and it's always just that, mythical, before sexuation, before alienation, before separation. Think back to our series on the drive and also on seminar 14. Sexuation, alienation, and separation. These are the three constitutive lacks or experiences of lack that go into the production of a subject. Before all of this, the before all of this is a fundamental fantasy of pre-symbolic Edenic wholeness. This mythical prehistory of the barred subject is a figure or effect structure of a fundamental fantasy. A fundamental fantasy that like all fundamental fantasies promises wholeness, completion, and the like. What the no of the Father prohibits is any continuation of life without this fundamental fantasy. Now, in the past, what I've often said is, 
What the no of the father prohibits is any furtherance of life without prohibition. That's still true. We're adding something to that here. What the no of the father prohibits is any furtherance of life without this fundamental fantasy regarding what was there before. You might even say this is an original fantasy. Why else are they called the Ten Commandments? They're not called the Ten Prohibitions, even though almost all of them begin with thou shalt not. That shit should have been called the Ten Prohibitions, right? They're not. It's called the Ten Commandments. The horrendous imperative of civilization, the basic commandment of the symbolic, it's not enjoy. That's not it. The horrendous imperative of civilization is fantasize. The flip side of the renunciation of enjoyment today is not the promise of enjoyment tomorrow, but instead the fantasy we sustain in the meantime. Namely, the fantasy that future enjoyment can and will restore lost wholeness. Let me be clear again. The flip side of the renunciation of enjoyment and that renunciation occurring today, repeatedly, every day as a new renunciation of enjoyment, it's not the promise of more enjoyment tomorrow. That's not the flip side here. Instead, it's the fantasy that we sustain between today's renunciation and that promise. There's a fantasy that gets us to the next day where we don't find enjoyment but instead a new renunciation. The fantasy though is strong and full enough to keep us going. It's the fantasy that future enjoyment, whenever we get there, can and will restore lost wholeness. Now, if you read the history of thought, you know that what we're talking about here is the eschatological stretch out that basically is the history of Christianity. Here in 16, Lacan is caught up with capitalism. Great, fabulous. But the other big C that structures Western thought is Christianity. And Christianity is founded on an eschatological stretch out. Jesus is always on his way. They've been saying this shit for thousands of years at this point. Jesus is always just around the corner. You're going to the store? Don't get a full loaf of bread, get a half loaf, because Jesus is on the way. One of the first great rhetorics of Christianity is around this deferral of end times. It was always imminent, it was always just about to arrive, but it was always in a future that was not yet. And that's how it works. Each day takes the end time and stretches it out just a little bit more, pushing it off to the next day. What else is the promise of enjoyment in the future but an eschatological stretch out of our own? Paradise, lost and regained. This is what too many of us in psychoanalytic theory and everyday life think jouissance is all about. We think it's about paradise lost and paradise regained. But that shit ain't the truth. 
the truth against which this fantasy defends is that wholeness is not something we once lost and can thus repossess again, but instead something that we have always lacked and always will. Again, we're back to that basic Lacanian dialectic between having and being. To exist as a subject is not to have lost something, but instead to live at a loss, to be always at a loss. It's the experience of loss, not the lost object, that gives psychoanalytic its clinical and conceptual orientations. Psychoanalysis has as its centerpiece, clinically and conceptually, not a lost object or some protocol for regaining it, but the experience of loss itself. Loss in the field of being is different from having lost something in the realm of possession. Let's stop there. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.